Uh, we've been in this uh, little series through the last few verses of Ephesians chapter 4, and we've been looking at how God wants us to be different in the best of ways, different like Christ. And last week we came to the verse that basically says, be angry. And that's just good news to all of us. I can do that one. Be angry. And yet, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. And this is actually kind of an encouraging verse because it relieves us just a little bit to know that that it is possible to be angry and to not sin. In fact, because anger is entirely appropriate in the face of injustice, in the face of wrong, uh, we, we know that Sometimes it's just flat out wrong not to be angry. Sometimes it's our duty to, ang- to be angry. Sometimes it's our privilege and responsibility to be angry. This lets us know that this emotion of anger, just like any other emotion, can be good. It can actually even be godly. Uh, but like any fruit that can spoil, it spoils pretty quickly. We don't get onto apples and say, well, apples are no good because they can spoil, or oranges are no good because they can spoil. Anger can spoil, but that doesn't mean it's not good. It's a great thing, but anger can spoil rather quickly, especially when we're dealing with our pride and with our, our ego and self-centeredness. And We talked about all this last week, and if you missed last week's message, you may want to, to go back and listen. But today what I want to do is press a little bit more deeply into a couple of things that I touched on last week. And one of the things that I touched on last week is that Jesus got angry, and yet he was without sin. And when Jesus got angry, good things happened. When Jesus got angry, God was honored. And so I want us to take a little closer look at Jesus in his anger, because when we get to know someone in their anger, we get to know someone a little bit better because your anger is at the heart of who you are. It's at the heart of who I am. If, if you tell me what makes you angry, I can tell you what you love. If you tell me what makes you angry, I can tell you what you most highly value. If you tell me what makes you angry, I can tell you the good that you're potentially on the verge of actually doing. And so I want to get to know Jesus a little bit better, actually through his anger, so we can have a standard whereby we can purify our own anger. Because when you see somebody getting angry for the right reason, and when you see someone getting angry for the right reason and doing something about it, doesn't that kind of inspire you and motivate you? It it, it should. Uh, For example, how many of y'all saw the Winston Churchill movie, Darkest Hour? Okay, for those of you that didn't see it, too bad, too late. I'm going to spoil some things. No, I'm not going to tell you anything that's not history. But I love that movie uh, because... You've got an angry man in Winston Churchill. It's hard to miss the anger at injustice and at, you know, obviously, you know, Germany for what they were doing and Hitler. And he was angry about incompetence. And he was angry with Neville Chamberlain and Lord Halifax and others in his own government who were compromising way too much and helping no one. And so when he spoke, he spoke with incredible passion. And you can actually go back online and you can listen to these speeches and, and, and remember some of these speeches and read these speeches. And here's what he said to the House of Commons when he was made the uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain. Here's what he said on May 10th, 1940, when he first took office. I thought this was so, so good. He says, on Friday evening last, I received His Majesty's commission to form a new administration. I would say to the House, as I say to those who have joined the government, 
I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat already. I'm getting chills, and I've read this like a hundred times. Just incredible passion. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Again, I, I, I kid you not. I got chill bumps on my chill bumps. We love angry people who get angry for the right reason, and then they do something about it. We love people like that. We follow people like that. We admire people like that. That's, I think, why we love Chuck Norris. I love Chuck Norris. Lots of people like Chuck Norris, and it's not just because he's tough. Okay, Chuck Norris is tough. When he wants an egg, he breaks open a chicken. Uh, Chuck Chuck Norris is the reason Waldo is hiding. Do you know why the universe is expanding? To get away from Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris does not read books. He beats them into submission, and they give him all the information he needs. Chuck Norris is tough. But that's not why we find Chuck Norris to be such a compelling person. The reason we find him so compelling is because in some way or another, Chuck Norris managed over the decades to attach his name with fighting against injustice. So uh, you had this, this little special that came out. It ran for about 10 years. A TV series, Walker, Texas Ranger. How many of y'all remember that? Walker, Texas Ranger. It's about this guy, kind of moralistic, sort of corny. It's about this Texas Ranger who walks around all over Texas kicking people. You know, I mean, but people ate that up. Why? Because they like to see men get angry for the right reason and do something about it. That's why. It's kind of a spiritual experience because it's kind of like Jesus. So, you know, guess what? If you want to see reruns of Walker, Texas Ranger, you know the channel you need? The Inspiration Network. That's the channel that carries like Charles Stanley, okay? So if you want to listen to Charles Stanley at the right time, you can listen to a good sermon. And after you've closed your Bible and prayed, the next thing you can watch is Chuck Norris kicking people. It's an incredible spiritual experience. It makes your day complete. So I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I actually, I actually think this is fantastic that on the grand scale of things, even higher up than Winston Churchill, even higher up than Chuck Norris, is Jesus. Because he gets, he gets really angry for the right reasons. And when he gets angry, he does the right things. He does something about it. And, and so I'm kind of excited today to be thinking about what makes Jesus especially angry. Because I want to get to know him better. And after all, we're told, you're told, I'm told, we need to be angry and yet not sin. And, and then don't let the sun go down on your anger, which is another way of saying do something about it. Either you give it over to God and ask for, you just, you know, give that situation over to God if you can't do anything. Or if you can do something, you don't let your sun go down on your anger. What you do is you go do something about it. And since we're told to be like Jesus in this regard, I think it's great for us to get to know Jesus a little bit better because when we see what it is that makes him angry and what he he does about it, it kind of helps us to kind of purify our anger. Because the goal for the Christian, the goal for you and the goal for me, isn't to get rid of anger, deny the anger, suppress the anger. It's to make sure that our anger is God-sized and God-shaped. That it's it's not petty. 
and as small as the little prideful, ego-centered world of me, myself, and I. So Jesus is the standard. We want to get to know that standard better. So here's what we're going to do in, in the time that remains this morning. We're just going to look at the four things that especially made Jesus angry. And I'm sure there are lots of things, but there are some things that really stick out from the Bible concerning what makes Jesus angry. And, and the first of these is this. Jesus gets angry. Uh, actually, you know what? Jesus gets angry, we'll start here, with uh, people who hurt children. If you do harm to children, it makes Jesus angry. And I think this is really kind of interesting to me that um, Jesus, who is wifeless and childless, becomes the patron and protector of children. Look at what he says in the scripture. Check this out. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now that last part sounds like something out of the Godfather, right? You know, Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. I mean, you know, Jesus gets mafia-level mad over children being hurt. And he should be angry. Don't, do you get angry when you see kids on, like, the news who've been bombed or they're covered in chemical weapons dropped in Syria and stuff like that? Doesn't that make you angry? It should make you angry. In that moment of your anger, guess what? That's righteous anger. In that moment, you're connecting with Jesus. You really are. You understand. Now, to be fair, when Jesus talks about not causing these little ones to stumble, the little ones can, in a broader sense, include people who are young in the faith. And, and, and no doubt, Jesus would not want those of us who are mature in the faith doing things that would cause those who are immature in the faith to stumble. But given the context, given the fact that he's taken this child and placed him physically in his midst, what we're really most specifically talking about are actual children. Jesus can't stand to see children being hurt or harmed. And so when the disciples are kind of arguing amongst themselves, who's the greatest, who's the best, Jesus takes this child, sets him in their midst, and says, right now, in this moment, you're beholding greatness. In this moment, you, you, you're getting the picture of what I think is the best. And he's not saying you can't have ambition. He's not somehow putting them down for wanting to be the best. He's just redefining things in a way that is fresh. He's saying, if you want to be the best, if you want to be the greatest, you need to become like this little child learning to trust in your Heavenly Father wholeheartedly without reservation. Like a child, you need to become like a child. The, the greatness is found in the least. And so Jesus loves, loves, loves the little children. Okay? All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. He loves the little children of the world. And since he loves the children, he gets angry when they get hurt. Better they slept with the fishes than hurt those children. Now, having said that, before we press on to something else, just to make sure we're all getting the application here. I'm, I'm assuming that most of us in this room, we're not neglectful of our children or beat our children. But what the Bible's teaching here, too, is if in some respect or another, as parents, we're coming between ourselves and we're, we're coming between Jesus and the children. If in some respect or another, we're teaching our children that Jesus is peripheral to our lives or to the life of our family, if in some respect or another we are communicating to our kids that Jesus is an afterthought to the family. We're hurting our children. 
And Jesus is not happy about it. Because your children are your children, but they are also, and even more so, the children of Jesus. So we have to be especially careful to treat our children appropriately. And we also need to be especially mindful that on occasion when we're asked to make sacrifices for the benefit of our children and do things that are uncomfortable for the benefit of our children, we need to do those things that are for the benefit of our children because our children belong to the Lord. And next week we're going to be doing, you know, some baby dedications. And that's actually part of the liturgy that we speak every time we do the baby dedications. Your children belong to the Lord. You've got a responsibility to communicate to your kids in your action, in your attitudes, in your deeds, in your time management, that when it comes to this family, it belongs to Jesus. And our children belong to Jesus. And he is ultimately the leader of the household, and we want him to be happy with how we handle our children and also in terms of their discipleship, quite frankly. So there's a challenge to those of us in this room, even if we're not beating our children. But Jesus does get angry when little children are hurt, and he should be. Shouldn't he? Does anybody here have a problem with Jesus being angry over children being hurt? I hope not. Of course, we'd be, we're, we're on the same page with Jesus here. But there's uh, three other things that make Jesus similarly angry. And I'm going to mention what those things are, and then we're going to look at Mark chapter 11 and see how those things actually come out of the text itself. But let me go ahead and mention what those additional three things are that make Jesus especially angry. Jesus gets angry when we lack concern that all people come to know him. Jesus gets angry at our hypocrisy. And Jesus gets angry when we live fruitless lives. If you have your Bibles, you may want to open them up to Mark chapter 11. The verses are going to be on the screen. But let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 21. And uh, let me just mention that I put in blue... In one color, verses 11 through 14, and then also verses 19 through 21. And the reason I did that is because I wanted you to visually see that this episode where Jesus is real angry in the temple that's kind of famous, it's, it's boundaried. There are the, these boundaries of Jesus dealing with the fig tree. And Mark does this for a reason. He wants the episode of Jesus with the fig tree to be a commentary on Jesus in the temple and Jesus in the temple to be a commentary on Jesus with the fig tree. Both of these narratives kind of explain and fill out the other, all right? Starting with verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out to the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. 
Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, of course, Jesus gets angry when people hurt children, but there's something else that we also need to see, and that is, number two, Jesus gets angry when we are indifferent to the lost. He gets angry when we lack concern for all people to come to know him. Now, you say, well, how do you know this? How do you see this? Where do you see it? I see it right there in the episode of Jesus cleansing the temple. Okay, hang on with me here for just a second. Uh, Here's the framework of the story. Jesus has come to Jerusalem, actually to the temple, which is the most sacred space imaginable. And he's come to Jerusalem during Passover. So Jerusalem is packed with people. It's packed with tourists, okay, Jews of the diaspora. That's a fancy way of saying Jews who've been scattered all over the place, Jews who've come from every corner of the Mediterranean world. So it's just packed shoulder to shoulder with people, Jerusalem is. And the mood in Jerusalem, it's got kind of a solemn edge to it because people are remembering, but it's mainly festive. You've got to remember that Passover is about people celebrating the fact that they've been liberated from slavery and that they were rescued from death. So one rabbi, I, I thought this was pretty good, he summarized Passover like this. He said, they tried to kill us. We got away. Let's eat. And so if you're, th- if you're thinking about Passover, you can maybe think about Thanksgiving Day. At the Thanksgiving Day parade in New York City, you're remembering and thankful over the last year, but largely it's a big giant party and there's lots of food. So at the epicenter of all the activity of, of Passover is, of course, the temple. And it's there at the temple in one of the major courtyards, in fact, the biggest courtyard. It's there that Jesus creates this disturbance. And you can imagine the pigeons flying out of their cages and the coins rolling around all over the stone floor and the tables being overturned and probably people thinking, if not actually saying, what does this guy think he's doing? See, people expected when they got to Jerusalem that they were going to purchase animals. And the reason they would purchase animals is animals were expected to be sacrificed during Passover. And people from every corner of the Mediterranean world, they're not going to be traveling with their oxen or sheep or even, you know, doves and pigeons. Mark specifically mentions pigeons here. When they get there, they're expected to sacrifice animals. And also they've got to purchase some, some meat for the Passover celebration for their family. And, of course, there was the expected donation that was going to be made, a temple, temple tax or a contribution to the, basically the temple treasury. But what made things even more difficult is not just that they needed to get animals when they got there, but in order for the purchases and the donations to be kosher, there had to be a foreign currency exchange. That is to say, if the donations were going to be kosher, if they were going to be acceptable, The donations and the purchases had to be made in the local currency, the shekel. And here's why. Roman coins had the images of human beings stamped on them. And that was taboo for the Jews. You you couldn't very well communicate to God, God, you're worthy of praise and worthy of worship. And here, I'm going to give you a coin that by its very shape and nature communicates that there are human beings worthy of exaltation and worship. So there had to be a foreign currency exchange because you had all of these tourists coming from all over the Mediterranean world with these ritually unclean coins in their pockets and in their purses. So there were two things that had to happen. There had to be a retail operation and there had to be a financial operation. And both of those operations were set up 
in the great expanse called the court of the Gentiles, the biggest portion of the temple. And by the way, the temple is huge. The temple covers about 35 acres. If you're going to walk around the, the, the wall of the temple, it'd take you about, I think, 0.82 miles. It's a big complex, and the biggest part of the complex is the court of the Gentiles, and that's where they set up the retail operations, where the animals were bought and sold, and that's where they set up the financial operations, where the foreign currency could, uh, could be exchanged. And Jesus goes after both of the businesses. Now, the question is, okay, well, why does Jesus go after the businesses? And there are a couple of popular answers, and one of the popular answers is, well, Jesus didn't like people doing business in sacred space. The temple is sacred space. Businesses are secular space. These two spaces should not intersect. You just don't do business in sacred space. And so if the Girl Scout told you, I'm going to bring you these cookies on Sunday, you better not have an exchange take place inside the building, go out on the street. And if you're worried about the street, well, she's a Girl Scout. She'll take a hit for you. Is that, is that the gist of this? No, that, that, that's really not the gist of this at all. That's not what Jesus has in mind. Now, a more popular response is, well, here's why Jesus was angry. The reason he was angry is not just because people were doing business on temple grounds. That wasn't the problem. The problem is people were getting ripped off. And it seems like that might be the case because Jesus calls it a den of robbers. So the, the real problem, as the theory goes, is Jesus was concerned about the mutton markups and the pigeon price gouging. He was concerned that these people who were doing the foreign currency exchange had favored themselves too much. That, and, you know, you can take advantage of tourists. And so that's kind of the theory that Jesus isn't upset that there's business being done on temple grounds. It was being done so that worship could continue. The real problem was people were being ripped off. Now, those are a couple of really good theories. Those are a couple of great guesses. And if you've made those guesses before, it kind of makes sense. But we don't have to guess. We do not have to guess. And the reason we don't have to guess is because Jesus, after this incident... He tells us exactly why he's so angry. And, and he references a couple of Old Testament passages. And back then, people were biblically literate. When he would have referenced these passages, people in their minds would have immediately known what Jesus was talking about. And so Jesus says, is it not written? And, 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 and when he says, is it not written? It's like, you know, this is rhetorical. You know what the Bible says, y'all. Is it not written that my father's house will be a house of prayer? My house will be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus, in those two sentences, references two passages from the Old Testament that were then familiar to people, two passages that were spoken from two prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. First, let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah wrote, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And the Hebrew word that's translated peoples or nations here is the Hebrew word goyim, which means Gentiles. In other words, it could be translated, Hey, my house is for the Gentiles too. My house is for all humanity, not just for a few insiders. And here's where it gets really interesting, and, and, and here's where we see why Jesus does what he does where he does it in the temple. You see, the retail and the financial operations that we talk about, they're set up in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And we've got a couple of pictures here. Can we put those up? 
you can see in this picture, it's that big expanse is the court of the Gentiles. That big open space. The vast majority of that territory, that's the court of the Gentiles. That's where all the retail and financial currency exchange operations had been set up. Uh, we've got another picture, if we can go ahead and show it. That's just more of a, a, a diagram, but you get the point. When it comes to the courtyard of the Gentiles, it's the biggest portion of the temple. And here's what you also need to know. It was the only place into which the Gentiles were allowed. The, 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 the only place, the one and only place where all the nations could come was the court of the Gentiles. But the court of the Gentiles had been taken up. Every square inch of the territory had been taken up by these hundreds of people selling animals and hundreds of people exchanging currency so that there wasn't a square inch left for the Gentiles. And you can imagine the commotion, right? When Jesus walks into the courtyard of the Gentiles, he would have seen thousands, actually literally thousands of people at hundreds of different booths buying and selling animals, hundreds of different booths where people are doing the foreign currency exchange. It would have been chaos. You, you could probably, you've seen the New York Stock Exchange, you know, pictures or video of people on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange when the exchange is open. That's probably nothing compared to the tumult that Jesus walked into that day when he walks into the courtyard of the Gentiles and he sees people buying and selling and all of this kind of commotion. And it was a lot of commotion because I know this, Josephus who is a Jewish historian, said that in one Passover week, over 25,000 lambs, that's not all the different animals, and that doesn't include the pigeons and the doves, over 25,000 lambs were sold and sacrificed during the week of Passover. That's like 5,000 lambs a day. It is chaos. Now can you see why Jesus is pretty angry? He walks into the courtyard of the Gentiles. There's no room for the courtyard for the Gentiles to do what the Gentiles are supposed to do. They've basically been expelled from the temple because everybody else has taken over the space. And this is the place where the Gentiles are supposed to pray and meet God. This is the place where the Gentiles are supposed to find the Lord that everybody is celebrating. Here's why Jesus gets so angry. Jesus is angry because... The insiders have basically excluded the outsiders. The people of God have become so focused on themselves, they've developed such a bad case of insideritis, they're not even thinking about other people needing a relationship with God like the one that they are enjoying in that moment. His house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples, for all nations, for all humanity, and they've turned it into something else. And that brings us to the next thing that makes Jesus so angry. That brings us to the statement from Jeremiah. When Jesus says, you've made it a den of robbers, everybody in their minds would have immediately gone to Jeremiah chapter 7. And there in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jesus is lambasting the people of God, the Israelites, for thinking that their fancy-schmancy temple in some way or another is going to give them a free pass on moral action. Here's what it says in verse 9. Will you steal? This is Jeremiah. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and go after other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, and here comes the, the statement, Call by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes. So who are the robbers? Well, the robbers are not the poor bankers and the pigeon salesmen who are trying to make a buck. 
the den of robbers, that's everybody. It's everybody who thinks that being a member of the Holy Temple Club somehow gives them some moral wiggle room. It's everybody who thinks that because they are associated with the glory and the majesty and the activity and the staffing and the programming of the temple, that somehow that kind of offsets them choosing to do a little sin here and there in their lives. They think they're going to get a free pass. They think they've got no moral wiggle room. And what, I, what Jeremiah says and what Jesus affirms is, hey, because of who you are, you're going to be held to the standard that you hold to. You will not be given a free pass. So this brings us to the third thing that makes Jesus so angry, and we see this elsewhere all over the Gospels. Jesus gets angry at our hypocrisy. When we ascribe to one standard and then we live by another, it infuriates Jesus. So he gets angry about their indifference to the loss, to their indifference to the outsiders. And he calls them on it, and then he calls them on their hypocrisy. Now, right after this, Mark tells us that after Jesus makes this scene and he quotes from these different passages, it says that the religious leaders, they continue to look for a way to kill Jesus. No wonder, right? What a party pooper. He's spoiling their fun. Here are all these people, and they're doing their religious activities, and they're feeling really good about themselves. And, and then Jesus shows up and ruins everything. I mean, they're thinking, why are you so unhappy? We're doing what the Bible told us to do. We're worshiping God, and everything seems to be going pretty smoothly. Oh, and by the way, the place is packed. Jesus, what's your problem? They have to be thinking this. Now, wait a second. We haven't seen this many people around this place in so long, and the place is filled to overflowing all day long, every day for a week, and we're having a good time, and you're angry with us about this? No wonder they wanted to kill Jesus. And that brings us to the fourth thing that makes Jesus so angry, and we see this pretty well in the whole statement about the fig tree. Jesus gets angry when we live fruitless lives. Now, you remember the story. I'm not going to go back all over the verses, but he sees this fruit tree, this fig tree that is lush with leaves, but when he goes over, there's no figs, and it makes him angry because all of a sudden this, he sees in this fig tree that it's concerned about appearances, not necessarily about nourishing the rest of the world around it. Now, I know that on the surface of things, this looks kind of bad, so let's just address this. Jesus goes to the fig tree. There are no figs. He gets angry, curses it. It dies, but it's not even the season for figs. Does that seem like Jesus is being kind of mean to you? Well, it kind of does, but let's just keep it real here. We could spend some time talking about the horticulture and that probably at this time of the year there were budding figs that weren't necessarily called figs, but they were still nutritious, and if they didn't have figs by that time, it wasn't going to produce figs, and we could defend Jesus, but let's just keep it real here for a second. I deserve, if killing vegetation were a sin, I deserve to go to hell several times over just for what I've done to the plants on our front porch. Okay? Now, I know some of us, we really love animals, and we love animals, and we have a dog, and we sleep with our dog half the time. In fact, the dog won't even let me kiss Gina when it's around. Okay? We love, his last name is Jones. Okay? But we're not talking about a dog. 
This is a plant, people, okay? Jesus isn't really dealing with the fig tree here, okay? He's dealing with you and me. This isn't between Jesus and a fig tree. This is between Jesus and you and me. He's using this as an opportunity to give us a parable, a word picture on hollow religiosity. You remember Jesus is about to walk in, into the temple where there's lots and lots of action, but not any real spirituality. There's lots of action, lots of commotion, lots of activity, lots of goings on, but no real spirituality. You say, what do you mean? Well, there's no prayer going on, not really. There's no people reaching other people, not really. They're, they're not really walking humbly with their God. They just showed up at the party. It's, it's all show and no go. It's all leaf and no fruit. And it's real easy to get into a rut where we're all okay with everything. And then we take a little closer look at the plant of our lives, individually or corporately, and we go, well, where's the fruit? And Jesus, he's not impressed by the leaves. He's looking for fruit. And when it's all show and no go, and then there's the self-deception on top of it, he gets angry. Now, I don't know how the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning, but if the Holy Spirit's done anything with you like the Holy Spirit's done with me, you're kind of thinking, you know, I think maybe Jesus might be angry with me. Well, maybe. <laughs> you know, maybe. I'm with you. Maybe he is. I think he is with me, at least. So what do you do? So, well, if Jesus is angry with me, what am I supposed to do? Well, it's really simple. When somebody has a right to be angry with you, and they call you on it, here's what you do. You apologize, and then you get on board. It's not that complicated. You know, here's the thing about Jesus that's so wonderful. He is slow to anger, but he's abounding in love, steadfast love. This is how Jonah puts it over in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Oh, you know, I, I, I wanted, I knew if I went and talked to those Ninevites, you're going to forgive them all, and everything's going to be okay, because you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. <clears throat> Well, you know, good, I'm glad God's like, like that because I need that forgiveness. I need that merciful heart and spirit. So if Jesus gets angry with you, it's not because he doesn't like you or hate you or anything like that, but, you know, he, he maybe he should be. If there's been a con lack of concern for the lost, if there's hypocrisy, if there's fruitlessness, well, yeah, Jesus should be angry. Well, if he's angry with you, here's what you do. You say, well, I'm sorry. You can get on board and immediately you just move on. That's how Jesus rolls. He's slow to anger, quick to forgive. Now, I know some of us are still thinking, but, you know, but I don't like the, I just don't like the idea of Jesus being angry with me. Why would Jesus be angry with me? I'm his child. He shouldn't be angry with me. And here's why. Because you're not his only child. You're not his only child. Now, when my children were, were younger, I mean, they haven't fought with each other in, like, weeks. But when they were younger and they would fight, you know, we'd get angry with one child or the other. You know why? Because the world didn't revolve around Nathan, didn't revolve around Shelby. And when I was younger, my parents would get onto me, and they still loved me, but they'd get angry with me. Why? Because I'd be fighting with my brother, or more frequently, actually, almost 100% of the time, my brother always started it. But that's okay. I'm not bitter. But my parents will get angry with me. You get angry with your kids. That doesn't mean you don't love them. But they're not the only one. Jesus says, my house is for all peoples. It's for all humanity. It's for all the nations. 
And to see my kids living in such a way where they don't even care, and they've actually excluded people from coming home, that's intolerable. I was uh, thinking about all of this, um, especially this last, this last week toward the end of it, because here's what happened. True, true story, very sad. You remember on Easter Sunday we had uh, Gary Ramirez do a baptism of Steve-O. Some of you were here for, for Easter Here's what happened. Earlier that week, just before Easter, Gary led Steve-O to Christ. Gary was 60 and Steve-O is 33. Led him to Christ back there in the prayer room as it was being constructed. Very cool. And uh, Gary's not a member of our church. He's a good believer. Steve-O was like, eh, I don't believe in God. I don't even care. I don't care if I go to hell, blah, blah, blah. Just very, very um, opposed to God. But Gary was his employer but also his friend and just kept witnessing and witnessing, and sure enough, in the prayer room as it's being constructed, Steve-O prays to receive Christ. That's on a Monday. The Sunday that follows is Easter. Gary baptized Steve-O. And then I got the news Thursday that Steve-O, 33, uh, suffered a brain aneurysm. And I don't know at what point he died, but by Friday morning he was dead. Baptized 33. Four days earlier, gave his life to Christ just less than six weeks earlier. And I was just thinking about this. And, and uh, you know, Mike Leeds mentioned something e- interesting. You know, brain aneurysms, don't, they don't just happen. I mean, you've got weakening of vessels that happen over years, period of time. And Steve-O lived a very, very rough, difficult life, as about as outsider as an outsider could be. And so the aneurysm was years in the making. But God saw fit through his child, Gary, to reach out to his other child who needed to come home. And he came home with not too much time to spare. God does get angry, but it's not because he doesn't love his children. It's because his children that he wants to see come home is a lot broader than what we typically think of. And I don't know what the space percentages are for the temple. It's kind of hard to figure out, but just looking at all the pictures and reading what I think is basically true, three-fourths of the temple was dedicated to those who weren't there. That's God's heart, is to see his other children come home. And if we're not mindful of those other children, if we're living in ways that are inconsistent with the faith that we hold, if we are unconcerned about bearing fruit in our lives, then, yeah, we need to repent. And our heart needs to be more like God's. Because he's only angry because he loves, loves, loves his children. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for... uh, the love and the grace you've bestowed upon us, and we do celebrate the relationship that you've extended to us over your son's broken body and shed blood. And of course, you're so very quick to forgive. It would only be four days after this episode and people planning to kill Jesus that Jesus actually voluntarily laid down his life. He is so slow to anger and quick to forgive. We thank you for, for that heart that is so clearly evident in the Scripture. 
But I just pray, Lord, that you would remake our hearts into a heart like Jesus, that we would not be indifferent to the other children that need to come home, that we would walk consistently and in humility before you, our God, that we would be concerned about fruitfulness, that we would not think that somehow being a participating member of the Holy Temple Club lets us off the hook. Oh, no, actually, it puts us on all the more so because we should know of all people how glorious it is to be in a relationship with you. And so for us to live in some kind of way that would deny a similar opportunity to others around us or not actually sacrificially make sure that others around us have received the same gospel truth, that's, that really should be unthinkable. So, Lord, I pray that you would grant us a, a gift of repentance, that we would be more mindful of others around us, and that our lives individually and collectively would look more and more like the temple you set up where our hearts and our vision is so largely about those who have yet to come home. Father, I don't really know what else to ask. I just pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and enable us to leave as children reflecting your glory in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.